This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Father Jesse Esqueda. Father Esqueda was born in Mexico, raised in Southern California, and ordained in 2014. He is a parish priest in Tijuana, Mexico, and is the superior for the missionary oblates of Mary for the Baja Mission. In this episode, Father Esqueda shares his experience of being called to mission work and how sharing his life with the poor, sick, and suffering changed him forever while leading him to his vocation as a missionary priest. We are in the periphery. We are in places where people squat on land that's not theirs. So they live in houses that are made of scraps of wood and tarps, and they have no running water or toilets, that type of reality. So because of that, we really have to go out and we really have to worry about the conditions that people are living, violence, the drugs, the youth, the children. And because of that, we create programs that really outreach, that go out. So that's part of who we are as missionaries. This is Living the Call. Father Jesse Esqueda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deacon Charlie. Good to be here. So great to see you. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sad we're not able to do it in person, but you know, I know, yeah. what, I know what the 405 is like. How long is that drive from TJ up here for you? Uh, it depends. Um, now I have Century, which is a fast pass, and it, it would take about three hours. Um, in the past, it would take up to five or six hours. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that because they don't they don't do the the border cross. But I've done it a number of times, and getting from California to Mexico is like easy. You know what I mean? Yes. You just like drive across, but then coming back, I remember what, the very first time I did that, like twenty years ago when I first moved to LA. Um, like coming back, it was this this whole ordeal because obviously you're you're in traffic, but then there's this game that a lot of people play where like they won't let you get into their even if they've got room, like they won't let you into their lane. It's like this very. <laughs> It's a very specific type of thing, you know, coming back across the border. So it can take a minute. I've been in line for about five hours. That was the worst, about five hours. And I had a flight, so I missed the flight and it was just a, a mess. Yeah, that century pass is a pretty good deal. I have a, yeah, it's a global, global entry, just like Zoom right global by. Global entry, correct. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father Jesse, I mean, I know you and I had a conversation uh, earlier and um, my friend, Scott Brown, a uh, big uh, little recognition to him from EWTN actually turned me on to you. And he said, hey, man, this is a guy you should talk to. And I took a look at some of the material. He sent me in a video and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And you and I had a, a brief conversation. I know we can get into a lot of things, but just to sure. kind of like, just to situate, you know, a little bit, kind of where you are, where you come from and all that stuff. I do think it's important to mention to the audience. And normally I don't do this. Like it's very conversational, but I do think it's important in this case specifically to situate kind of where you are and what you're doing, because I think it leads to a lot of this, this conversation. Sure. So I grew up in the LA area. Um, I was a youth minister at many, several parishes in the LA area, the diocese of LA. And um, I remember back when I was in college, I really felt the calling to do missionary work. Mm. Um, I was doing youth ministry and I just felt that I wanted to do more. So I went to Honduras uh, for the first time, Honduras in Central America. Um, and it was a great experience. I had never seen poverty at that extent. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, just coming back and see having electricity, having running water for me was just such a blessing. So I think that really made an impact in me. I kept on going back to Honduras. I took groups of, of young people. And then finally in 2005, no, 2003, I decided to move there. So I had a two-year experience in Central America. And um, if you Google some of the things that happened in 2004 and 2005, horrible things. Yeah, um, There was a fire in Central America where uh, the government is really against the gangs because the gangs have done a lot of, hurt, a lot of damage sure. to the city. 
So there was a fire in the jail where there was a lot of gang members. And they didn't open the uh, gates to the cell for over an hour, I think. Mm. 104 died, burned. Oh, man. Uh, so that was a huge scandal. And then back in uh, December 23rd of 2004, uh, some friends came to visit me from, from the LA area. And we were giving up food in the streets with the sisters of Mother Teresa. And there was a massacre. There was a massacre just right down the street where we were at. Um, 26 people were killed. Mm. It was just horrible. Uh, so being in, 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 a, in a place that was so violent, uh, so much poverty, uh, really changed my life. Something very interesting when my friends from LA that were there, when they saw the news and saw what was going on, and this is just a few kilometers away from where we were at, um, they were all scared. They wanted to come back home, and obviously, you know, for good reasons. Uh, so we went, we talked to a priest, we prayed about it, we went on one day retreat, and they decided to stay. We decided to stay. And we were going to go take food baskets to the people that had had somebody died from their family because this happened right before Christmas. So around the 27th, uh, we went um, to visit the families. And experiences like that were life-changing for me. Mm. I, I was in a relationship before I went to Honduras. Uh, I had a girlfriend. I, I thought I was going to get married and have four children. I had a plan. But just being in Honduras... Uh, having all these experiences really changed my life. So yeah. finally in Honduras, when I was there for two years, I said, okay, Lord, if you want me to be a missionary priest, mm. open the doors. But Father, ba back up just one second though, about sure. the missionary inclination. So you said you you kind of had this desire, right? For, for, for those who don't know, and, and we talked a little bit about this, but this show has a very diverse listenership, right? We've got sure. a lot of devout Catholics. We've got people who are making their journey, who are kind of making their way. We have some non-Catholics. In fact, we actually have some non-Christians even <laughs> that listen to the show. But the idea of a missionary um, calling is a very specific thing, right? And sure. I'm just curious, like, how that comes up. Like, you mentioned the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's order, and you were with them in, in Honduras. But, like, what before? Like, what did you see someone or read something or watch a movie or do something that said, like, wow, this is, I'm kind of vibing on that that type of thing that I feel like I want to go out somewhere rather than necessarily do it where I happen to live or be? Sure. Um, I grew up in a parish uh, ran by the uh, Vincentian priest. So they're missionaries too. Um, so back in the 90s, uh, they had a mission experience in Honduras. So two of my sisters went to Honduras uh, for a month. And I was really excited to see them go. I was very young, not old enough to go. Uh, but then when they came back, there were so many stories and they shared so many things. Mm. So that's when the, uh, the idea of doing this type of work so again, a few years later, the Vincentian priest, we're going to send a few people from the LA area to Honduras. And I decided to go. And again, I had that mission experience. It was so powerful. Um, I, I'm Mexican. I, I was born in Mexico, actually, but I never lived in Mexico. I lived in LA most of my life or mm. all of my life. So I have never seen poverty to that extent. You yeah. see it on TV, but to, to be able to see it, to, to have friends that live in that type of poverty, it's a game changer. At least it was for me. So um, working with missionary priests, having family members that did this experience kind of led me to feel uh, the desire to do this. Mm. Um, and I liked adventure. So at first I wanted to go to see another country, yeah. to uh, see another culture. But being there, I think that was just, it, it was such an impact in me. You so when I came back, I kept on doing it. You strike me as that kind of guy who's got that little bit of dose of adventure. And that's a, that's a really sure. important <laughs> thing, frankly, 
really in the Christian life is is we have to be sort of outwardly oriented. We have to be oriented to encounter, to new experiences, right? We can't it's easier sometimes, more comfortable to kind of sit back and just kind of live in, in that. But that sort of zeal and desire for adventure, I've always found to be a very good thing. It's something that I happen to share. I love to travel and do different things. When when um when you were doing this uh, this mission trip and those things happened, those you know catastrophic things that you described, did you consider that like now part of basically the missionary experience? Like if I'm going to do this, these are the kinds of things that I may sometimes need to experience? Um, yes. I mean, it depends on where you go, but there's definitely, you're going to go into a different country, and especially if it's a country that there's a lot of poverty. If there's a lot of poverty, there's usually corruption and maybe violence, uh, drug violence. So that's definitely something that I had to consider. Mm. Um, I remember the, the day that I was leaving, because uh, my mom read about it and we we looked into it. It was a very violent city. It's called San Pedro Sula in Honduras. Mm -hmm. um, so she was really scared. Even though she's a very devout Catholic, she she really brought us up um, with the idea that we were created to serve the world, that part of being Catholic meant service. So that's why we were very involved in our church. Um, she was really scared. She was giving me her blessing and she just started crying because she was really afraid. Mm. And I remember that day clearly. And of course, there was an element of fear. Um but, you know, the more I read about it, the more I realize that usually violence in these countries could be between people that are involved in that type of lifestyle. Yeah. Um, sometimes there is violence against missionaries, but it's not that common. So that kind of gave me uh, a boost of energy and, and courage. So, you know what? I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to do my work in the church, working with the people that are in need. And just, of course, be careful, but not let a fear drive me. Like I said, when we when we had this massacre back in 2004, the immediate uh, our feeling, especially of my friends that were visiting, is to come back to the U.S. Mm. Uh, but again, after yeah. speaking to a priest, bringing it to prayer, it really did give us the courage to say, "Okay, we're going to stay here a little longer. We're going to be careful, but we're going to stay." I find I find it really interesting. You know, every time I've mentioned, I did this just recently. Last year, I went down to Baja. My uh, I had my. Uh, 20th wedding anniversary with my wife. And oh, congratulations. We, thank you very much. And we wanted to recreate our kind of honeymoon. Our honeymoon, we were like poor, broke. Like we had, so we just like got in the car and we drove, right? We took, we went from LA and we went north. We ended up going to, you know, Nevada and Arizona, Northern California, mm -hmm. just kind of drove. And this time we wanted to do the same thing, but go south. And so, and we wanted to do it on, I ride motorcycles. So we wanted to ride a motorcycle. And so, we got a bike. I rented one, this kind of adventure bike, and we ended up driving down into Baja. And now I lived in Mexico as a kid, Mexico City, not in Baja. But for, oh, wow. so for me, I've never been, I've never had this sort of apprehensions about traveling to different places, but it always strikes me in the times that I've mentioned um, that particular trip and others, but that particular one, because it's the most recent one, like, hey, I'm going to go, um, my wife and I are going to go ride a motorcycle down to Baja and do the Guadalupe Wine Valley and, you know, Ensenada and Rosarito and all that stuff. What people say, like, and of course it depends who it is, but almost immediately the topic goes to, you know, is it safe? Is it, you know, sure. what's going on down there? And then I think about, I live in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's like, do you, do you look around like what's happening here? I mean, if sure. you want to find trouble, you'll get into it. And so right. a lot of it, I'm not saying there aren't dangerous places in the world. There are, but so much of it is like, do you have your wits about you? Are you somebody who is interested in the culture? Are you going to engage? Or, you know, 
like it's sort of common sense stuff. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like a lot of it is, of is like this apprehension that's a little bit misplaced. Yeah. And, you know, um, we've been here in, in, in Baja California, the missionary oblates. And at the beginning, it was mostly uh, Anglo-American priest, uh, not Hispanic. And never, we've never had a problem. And we've had many groups come uh, to visit. And again, it, it really depends on what you do and who you do it with. And uh, it could be in L.A., you could be in Chicago, you could be in Detroit, uh, which are cities that have high levels of violence of and get in trouble. Uh, or be in a country where there is violence, but you also be very smart about it and careful and not get into any trouble. And now, Father, you are, in, in addition to, to being a pastor at a parish in TJ, you're also the superior for the Missionary Oblates of Mary for Baja, right? For the Baja Mission, correct. For the Baja Mission. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, even your immediate parish and its surrounding sort of churches is a, is a pretty significant area. There's a couple hundred thousand people living in that area, is that correct. right? Correct. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that I found fascinating, and I'd love for you to kind of riff on this a little bit, but um, one of the things I found fascinating about seeing some of the things that you guys are doing down there and the, and the work that you're leading is I've been wrestling a lot with the notion of what the word parish actually indicates, right? In a, in a mm. typical Catholic understanding, we hear from the U.S., let's say it that way, like when we hear parish, we think predominantly of like a building, like sure. a structure, right? But when I see what you're doing down there, I think, well, this is parish in the real sense, which is this is a geographic area. Like in other words, the sheep, the sheep of a pastor are not just the people who show up in the building, who show up for mass. It's like everybody who lives sure. in the parish. And, you know, this is no dig against, you know, uh, priests here in the U.S., but that sentiment is not as visible, let's say, as the way that you're approaching that kind of parish reality in Baja. Right. So, um, so I joined the Oblates when I came back from that mission experience. I met them and they were missionary priests. Uh, so that's when I joined the, became a missionary. And all through seminary, I was always asking, can I go to the missions in Baja or in somewhere else? So then finally I was ordained in 2014. It's going to be nine years. And awesome. my first Thanks obedience was to the Baja mission. Mm. Um, so I was really excited. And, and again, I had been here a few times uh, in my seminary years. Um, so yes, coming here, the Oblates came to Baja California or to this part, at least to Tijuana, because they were in, 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 in Mexicali, Mexicali. But here in Tijuana, they came in 2000, uh, no, I mean, I'm sorry, 1992. And then in 1996, the, the parish was established. It was called St. Eugene after our founder, St. Eugene. And again, the whole model of parish here, because we're in the poorest parts of the city, the poorest parts. We are right now, we're the largest and the poorest uh, parish, I would say, in the Diocese of Tijuana. Mm. So we work with people that live in extreme poverty. Um and because of that, it's 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 a very different type of of reality here. Because Tijuana has a beautiful places, sure, and you can go to Tijuana and feel you're in a city and in the U.S. But we are in the periphery. We are in places where people squat on land that's not theirs. So they live in houses that are made of scraps of wood and tarps, and they have no running water or toilets. Uh, that type of reality. So because of that, we really have to go out, and we really have to worry about the conditions that people are living violence, the drugs, the, uh, the youth, the children. And because of that, we create programs that really outreach, that go out. So that's part of who we are as missionaries. Um, but I can give you more detail of some of our programs. Some of them are heartbreaking of how they came about. Um, and some of them are just beautiful to see uh, just the, the, the growth of people and the youth 
because we work with a lot of youth here in Baja. I do want to I do want to talk about that, but before we get to that, because I, I I I'm I'm stunned, frankly, by a lot of the just the depth and the breadth of the things that you're tackling down there. But before before we do that, sure. what I wanted to do is talk a little bit more about this intersection of mission or missionary and poverty, right? Because I know that one of the the, the, the sort of chief charism of of the uh, the missionary oblates of Mary is really to be devoted to the evangelization of the poor, right? Sort of like the people at the margins. And to some extent, we all as Christians have this preferential or should have a, a preferential option for the poor. But what to your mind, and maybe thinking of it as having that interest in mission, having that sense of adventure— and now this idea of ministering on mission and adventure to like the poorest of the poor, what does that overlap? Like, how does that play out? Or how did that play out for you? Like, was this just like, oh, this is perfect. It's got mm-hmm. the missionary aspect, but I'm also kind of following through on this charism. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. Our founder, St. Eugene, he was a, a man with a lot of zeal, a lot of personality. Some people compare him with St. Paul. Um So even though we work with the poor, we're not social workers. We're not there just to provide social services. Yeah. Uh, One of our key values is Christ as the center of my life. Mm. So we have to be men of prayer, men of contemplation before anything else. So even though we work in communities that are very poor, uh, we don't just, like I said, give them food or shelter, but we also uh, help them to become the best person possible to be Christians if, if they're Christians and become saints. Our founder, St. Eugene, said, you know, first help them to become fully human, then Christians, then saints. So that's something that we, we, we live by. Um, the human aspect is very important, that we have to make sure that they have food and shelter and education, healthcare. But then we want them to become Christians, mm. to really fall in love with Christ, Amen. and then finally to become saints. And, and you do that, you know, with really working in all levels of the person, not just the, the, the human level. So for me, it was perfect. Um, like I said, my background is in youth ministry. I come from a, a retreat ministry where it's very uh, uh, powerful, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit and, and adoration and mass. You know, so to be able to combine that, to be able to combine that, that deep faith with, with service uh, to the most abandoned, for me, it was a great combination. Like I said, I, I, I was ordained and then I came here. This has been the only place that I've been a priest wow. uh, here in Tijuana. And it's been amazing. Uh, my my time is coming up that maybe soon I'm going to be moved. and But I would be happy to stay here a few more years. For sure. I, I, I love it here. Well, and I think what you described about this um, sort of approach or this these stages, right, from, from your founder about, you know, first let's, you know, uh, have them act like humans and then like Christians and then finally like saints. That whole, that process is a process that happens in relationship. And right. again, no dig on social workers, but... In a lot of social work, it's more of a one-way street. It's like kind of a transaction, right? It's like I give or provide or do something. I'm, I'm not taking anything away from it, but it is, it's not necessarily entering into a relationship that, that needs to be there in order for you to actually, you know, walk with somebody as they go through these different phases. And the other thing is that as you're doing that, I'm sure you yourself are being formed and growing and whatever, right? So Correct. this idea of relationship is like, kind of part and parcel to what you just said. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Life Teen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I used to be a, a, a youth minister and they emphasize a lot of the trainings, the relationship ministry with the youth that, uh, and they would say, you know, young people are going to forget most of the things they heard, the talks and the retreats, but they'll remember the relationship. 
the people that were there for them. Mm. So I came uh, with that in mind, that if if we were going to have any impact with the youth, then we first have to have a relationship to re- be able to to guide them, you know, um, to become fully human, Christians and saints. So yeah, relationships at the, at the, at the core of all of this. And you're right, um, a missionary, we feel that we're going to go and serve and we're going to go give. But in reality, we, we gain so much more. Yeah, my faith has grown so much here in Tijuana. I feel that I'm a very happy priest. Uh, I love what I'm doing, and I learn so much from the people that could be so poor mm. yet so generous. Yeah, and so faith-filled. That was my experience. The first, I mean, I, I, I like I mentioned, I was born in in California, but I grew up in a number of different countries because my dad had a job that moved us around a lot, and um, I also got a chance to travel quite a bit. And um, when I first went to Africa, I experienced some of you know, similar poverty that was foreign to what I envisioned poverty was. Um, But what I found was a, a really enriching experience, a really joyful, generally a very joyful people and, and and people who taught me quite a bit. And I I found like I had grown so much, even though when I first got there, I felt like it was me sort of like my job to give stuff or give, you know, or to serve as, as, as you say, but I found the process very formative for me. And I think we lose sight of that especially in the U.S., even in ministerial contexts, that it's like, okay, we are serving you or we are giving of ourselves. That's true, but God is, you know, bigger than just you, so he's 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 seeing an, a chance to also form you and have you grow and have you become more equipped in the Christian life as you're ministering to somebody, sure. right? And we kind of can forget that a little bit sometimes. You know, here with the Oblates, because uh, uh, youth ministry is very important to the Oblates. Our founder, St. Eugene, one of the first things he did was to uh, gather youth. He wasn't so much interested in having a youth group. Rather, he wanted youth leaders. Mm. So he really emphasized informing uh, young men uh, or young men and women to become leaders. So um, so now we, because youth ministry is so important to us, our kind of like our logo slogan is mission with youth, not mission for the youth, yeah. mission on behalf of the youth, is mission with youth. with youth. We're in it together. Nice. Hey, they're learning the Christian life as we're learning from them. And we're also learning as we're walking in this journey together. That, so the whole concept of mission with youth mm-hmm. can also be a game changer. I was um, going to say, it's a total chip change, you know, just one little word, but it's that nuance right. is important. Uh-huh. So we want to make sure that we're developing leaders in, in, in youth ministry and that, um, they're going to be leaders, as scripture says, you know, that they're going to be able to bear fruit and fruit that last, you know. Mm. So that's kind of like the goal that we we go into a community that's very poor. And there's so many things that come with poverty, so many sad stories. But again, people with a lot of hope that become great leaders in their community. And And that's the thing is like so many stories, because again, what struck me about what you're doing is the breadth of what's being done. And in a way, I don't want to remark too much about it because I would hope that, you know, every pastor, every priest, every deacon, every Christian might feel similarly inclined, but I just don't see a lot of examples of it in everyday life. So it struck me. But when we're talking about the way that you um, serve and minister in Baja, we're talking about health outcomes. We're talking about education. We're talking about Mm -hmm. vocations. We're talking about construction work, engineering, music, uh, you know, legal aid, uh, migrant programs for those people who are coming up through Mexico who are not from Mexico. We're talking about like real outreach and it, it just, there's so much and it's all hands on. It's not like there's some, you know, comité off in the side, like doing this sure. stuff and reporting back. 
So it's really steeped in this, you know, super, um, you know, uh, just this this encounter kind of idea, and it comes through in the materials that I've seen from what you're doing. Yeah, and, and you know what? Um, I think along the way, um, the oblates are known to be practical, to to be able to see a problem and say, okay, what are we going to do? What's our response? Uh, Saint Eugene, our founder, wanted the youth to become yeast, you know, yeah, and for them to to be have be able to uh, see the reality and then respond to the reality. So I think along the way, I think we never came here with the idea we're going to have these programs. We saw a need and we said, okay, how do we, how do we do this? So let me tell you a quick story. Um, for example, we didn't have a school for children with special needs. We have it now and it's a great school. We have speech therapists, psychologists, social workers, part of our school. Uh, one of the priests visited a family and uh, they opened the door and they had a, a young boy I think it was Down syndrome, but he was tied up and then they had food on the ground. Um, and, and, and it wasn't that they didn't care about this boy. I think it was the grandparents, uh, but it's just that they didn't know how to handle this. Uh, the parents, grandparents didn't have any education, what to do, the skills to be able to mm. help him. Um, so to be able to see this reality, uh, a young boy that's tied up and there's food on the ground because the family doesn't know what to do um, was one of the first things that that really move the oblates to, to start a school for children with special needs. So now this is a very important part of what we do. We bring in uh, the parents. Uh, so we have classrooms, different type of needs, autism, Down syndrome, just any, any special need. We have compassionate teachers, social workers, like I said, um, and all of it is coming together as part of who we are. Again, we're not just social workers. This is coming from a, a faith uh, belief, you know, that all people are created equal that our brothers and sisters in need deserve, you know, to have, you know, uh, the opportunities to help them become Christian saints and become, you know, who God intended them to be. And that they're valuable and that they have dignity, Correct. right? Um, and now I think what I understand is that the people, you know, who is doing this ministry and this teaching and this, you know, supporting of this community is increasingly the members of the community that was initially being served, right? So there's sort Correct. of like this, this, this flywheel that you've kind of built where now I see the young people coming up and it's like, oh yeah, I'm a doctor and I'm an engineer now. And, yeah. and they're kind of like, it's like a virtuous circle. So, so, so I think that's been one of the, uh, of the best things. Cause like I said, we developed some programs, for example, the school for children with special needs was one of the first programs. We also developed a clinic uh, in the clinic. We had dentist and we had psychologist um, but I think we we really wanted to make sure that it was the people there from that community serving um, many of the young people because we were very successful with the with the youth uh, with the retreat ministry search. We had hundreds of youth coming to our programs. Uh, for us, it's not a problem of having youth. For us, is we have too many youth. Mm. They don't fit in our programs. We need bigger facilities. Wow. Anyhow, so we had all these young people, intelligent, huge heart. They wanted to serve, and many of them wanted to go to college, but cannot afford college. So that's when we started a scholarship program. We, we gave scholarships here and there in the past, help someone with their education, but to have a, an actual program where they would have to apply and they would have to uh, be responsible for their grades and be able to have a donor, you know? And that really changed everything. The program started in 2000 and, 2017. So it's, it's only been around for close to six years. Um, since then, we've had uh, three doctors graduate, medical doctors, wow. a dental surgeon, many engineers, lawyers, psychologists, uh, just young men and women that now their lives are going to change forever. And the best part is that they're staying. So they graduate. For example, we have a mental health program. 
we used to have in the past one psychologist that would do uh, counseling because there's a lot of sexual abuse, drug abuse, dysfunctional families, just so many things. So we had one psychologist, but now we have a committee. We have uh, four psychologists and then psychology students are constantly uh, going into the community, giving workshops on self-esteem, on on Christian values, on on just so many things, you know, forgiveness, uh, dealing with conflict, all of that. Uh, so we have a committee of, in, in our mental health program, the doctors, when we, we, our, our community got so big that we gave part of our, of our community to the diocese with that, we gave them our clinic, but then we came, um, we, we, we continued, but it's smaller. Um, still when I'm, when I'm saying small, I'm talking about 150,000 people within our area mm. that live. Um, so especially during COVID, uh, people were dying, not so much because of COVID, but because, they were abandoned, elderly, they were sick, they didn't have the medication, and they were alone. Mm. So we had to respond to that need. So we had some medical students that were graduating, uh, and then we just we just moved them to go into the community. And then we started another health program. And now we have uh, some physical therapists, the uh, the doctors, nursing students that visit uh, the the poor every day. Mm. So, um, so it's an outreach. We don't have now a clinic where they come and they bring people. We go to people's houses yeah, and it's word of mouth. You and go out there. And go it's to the amazing margins. to see what young people are able to do. They yeah. they give showers, they cut nails, they clean their houses because sometimes they're in the middle of filth because they've been sick for 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 months, weeks, with nobody changing them. So going into this this reality that could become so difficult for many of us because of the smells and and just to have young people go in there with such passion to want to serve and help, um, it's been incredible. What? So we have this health program that it's, like I said, our doctors are really active. And it's funny because um, one of our, our graduates, she graduated from medical school. She gave a presentation and she has so much experience. Because of course. she was here in the community that she says, you know, doctors are coming up to me and saying, wow, like the amount of experience that you got from your community, from the service that you're doing. It's something that you don't get in years after medical school. So not only is it helping our community, it's helping them uh, to become well-rounded professionals and human beings and Christians. It's like the ultimate internship, if you think about Correct, it. Correct, yeah. 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 What's at the heart of the poverty that you see and serve? So I ask that because, I, you, you know, universally, I'm sure there's similar things that are at the heart of poverty. There might be a, a disregard for the human person or indifferentism or something. But if you think about poverty here in the U.S., a lot of the poverty here in the U.S. is, in my opinion, kind of the result of a very consumerist kind of perspective, sure. right? A very indiv uh -huh. individualistic kind of culture, things like that. Those things are different in Baja. But like, wh sure. what would you say in your experience is sort of the heart of the poverty that you see? Well, two things. Uh, first of all, uh, because uh, TJ, Tijuana, it's in the border, so there are many factories that are coming here, um, which is a good thing because it provides jobs for people. So we have uh, just every day new factories. So we have hundreds of factories from all over the world here in Tijuana. So people are moving to Tijuana because there's jobs. But two things happen with that. People move uh, from the, you know, their places down south or even Central America where they had a little piece of land, where they had a house, they had maybe um, their own food that they, they would garden uh, they come to the city with nothing. So we have hundreds of migrants that are coming from the south of Mexico. And so they're squatting many times on federal land 
because they have nowhere else to go. Mm. But because there's jobs here, they, they come here for jobs. And the second problem is that though there's factories, uh, most uh, or some of the factories, they pay about maybe $85 to $90 a week for 48 hours of work. Wow. So um, if you have a family of five or six and you're working 48 hours um, and you're making a $85, $90 for a week, you're going to stay in poverty for the rest of your life. And, you know, things are not cheap here. Um, I put gas in my car the other day and I think it was like 85, my truck. Wow. Uh, so that would be someone's uh, pay for the week. Or I've taken a few young adults to lunch, nothing fancy. And it's maybe $65, $70. So that would be someone's income for a week. Um, so if you have that, you have a working father or you have a working father and mother. So then the children are left alone. And that creates so many other problems, right? But if you have one income, that's not going to make ends meet. So if you have two people working, you have more income, but then you have children that are left alone. Uh, so that creates problems. Or if you have one parent working, how is it possible that someone's going to go to college? Even though college is tuition is, is very cheap in Mexico. That's why people love our scholarship program. Uh, a public school, it's only about $200 a semester for okay. public university. So that those $200 can be a game changer that can change the life of a young person here in Tijuana, even some adults that are going back to college. Um, and, and we tell them, if you don't go to college, it is likely that you're going to be working for a factory for the rest of your life and you're going to stay in poverty. So the only way out of poverty is education. Um, so I think those are two very unique factors yeah. of being here at the border that people are coming and they're working because there's a lot of jobs but our jobs that, you know, they, they provide some health care, all of that, but you really won't get out of poverty. And a lot of those companies that are that, that go south of the border are looking at economies of scale. I mean, frankly, they're they could probably afford to pay if they're especially they're American companies uh, right. a, a bit more. But they look at it as, you know, geographically very well suited to their operations because it's very close. Um, and there's economies of scale where you can get the work done for significantly less. And. Sadly, in a lot of cases, that becomes a, a maybe not predatory, but certainly advantageous to the company to, right. um, you know, pay what people will accept, even though they could well pay more of a living wage. Of course. And, and, and you know, some of the students, uh, because they want to help their families, so they get a job at a factory. And we know, you know, if you get a job at a factory, you're probably going to drop out of school because you, you're working 48 hours. Um, you're probably not stop going to mass. Um, mm. and that's going to really affect everything. So, so what do we do? We want to give you a scholarship, but then what do we do? So you can pay your, 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 your bus fare and lunch because we pay your tuition, but then some students, they say, you know, they're, they're at school and they don't eat the whole day because they have no money for food. Mm. Uh, some of them, their moms could bring, take them a burrito. So, so your stories that are just so difficult, but you see how much these young people want to succeed. And that regardless of the obstacles of the lack of finance, that they still graduate from college. We had one of our medical students, she couldn't afford the textbooks. So she was taking pictures of somebody else's textbook wow. from her phone. And she was studying medical school through pictures. On her phone. On her phone. Yeah. You know, she's now, she's a doctor now and she's part of our health program here. Uh, and it's amazing. So to see where they were and where they're at now, it's amazing. And I think that's the best part because, uh, again, uh, they're helping their own. Mm. So it's not just the oblates that are here doing all the work. 
uh, its mission with youth, mission with the people yeah. that they're becoming professionals and they're helping other young people to go to school and become a professional and then give back to their community. Well, it becomes generative. I mean, it like gives, you know, the, the yeah. more the more of those seeds that you plant, then things begin to sort of flourish and then they give back and it becomes this sort of ecosystem, which is what I see happening down there. Now, I know that, and you've mentioned several times that you, it's, you guys are going out, right? You're going out and finding these things. But I can imagine after the number of years you've been there now, the community must also see you in a way as like a, a place to go in, in right. times of, of need. Right. Um, I was talking to somebody just recently in, in the diocese of Los Angeles, which you may know this, but in the diocese of Los Angeles, you know, the, the biggest sort of charitable arm of the diocese is uh, the Cardinal McIntyre Fund, which a lot of mm. priests don't even know about. And it's based on, you know, Cardinal McIntyre was a, an older bishop, a bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles back in the 50s or whenever it was. And he set up this fund because his perspective was when parishioners, when people, he, I don't even know he's thinking parishioners, but when people need help, they're going to go to their pastor and say, hey, I need some help with, you know, a sick relative or a light bill or whatever it is. And this fund was established to do that. The kind of irony to me is that so many people don't even know that it exists because the mm -hmm. model of like going to your pastor when you're in a jam at your job or you missed a bill or your car broke down, like people don't do that anymore. But right. I can imagine that in your community that people see you also as a place to go to in right. issues of, you know, whatever things come up, right, in, in their life. Does that happen? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Um, especially because we we give a lot of food baskets. Um, especially, I was I was telling you earlier, in January, we have a Epiphany. So a lot of U.S. groups, they want to come and they want to share food baskets with the people or toys with the children. So um, we give in the thousands. Um Last month or this month, January, we probably gave about two to three thousand food baskets. Wow! Um, so we constantly have people coming in, coming to our, our church for that. Um, like I said, many migrants that are coming from from other countries, um, and then they they're directed here. You know, they say, you know, they told us to come here that you guys have a migrant program. So this is also a place where people come. Um, our mental health, uh, like I said, it, it wasn't very popular. Mental health or going to a psychologist is not very popular among the poor. In Mexico, it might be, but not, not among the poor. Why? Right? And for them to see how much it helps them to forgive people that have hurt them, to let go of, 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 of anger, to be able to, to, uh, to control or, or, or moderate your, your temper, all of that. Um, now we have, like I said, three psychologists that are here and there's a waiting list. Uh, people are discovering that, you know, there's something that I can do in my life to not feel this way, to change the way I look at things. So yes, we're busy every day. People come to the church, but we also do a lot of outreach. We also go out. Uh, but yes, of course, people know that this is a place where they can come and we have the programs for, for, for many people. The people that come and visit, right, especially mm -hmm. the stateside people who come, I can imagine that they're, they're impacted by this experience. Is there a way that you send them back to wherever they came from or like some advice or nugget or some message you send them with when they return? Yeah, and especially lately, because uh, we've had volunteers for many years. Um, and of course, because this is right on the border and it's a missionary order, we're connected to the U.S. because it's a U.S. province. So people, um, they, they've been coming and we've never had a problem with a volunteer, meaning that nobody has ever been in danger in the 20 something years that we've been here. But lately, um, we've been 
in the past, some of the groups would come and they would do uh, give out the food baskets or they would build a house or put a roof on someone's house and they would have a good time with the people that they helped. Uh, but we wanted to give them more of an experience. So, so now when they come, especially since we have a very big youth group, we do a lot of activities with the youth group so that they don't just encounter the people that they're helping, but they create or develop relationships. So we could do like a, a night of sharing stories. Mm. Uh, we do a lot of dancing after it, like a dinner because they do a lot of flash mobs at our youth. Nice. Uh, so they show them like different steps through different songs and through music, through sharing. Um, it becomes a very powerful experience. Uh, we had a group that came from Canada a few years ago. And at first, some of the young men especially were breaking the rules uh, because they were just here because they wanted to go to another country. Um, so we were going to send them back. But they had been here a few days and they say, you know, give us a chance. We really are having a, a, a very different experience than what we thought. And by the end of the mission experience, they were in tears, you know. Mm. They came here because they wanted to have a good time. Yeah. And after interacting with the people, after hearing their stories, after praying together, it had been like a life-changing experience. Um, so that's what we want people. We don't want just people to come and give. We want them to have an experience that we're all the children of God, regardless of where you were born, color of your skin, if you're poor or not. So that's why we do try to um, emphasize the faith element. Um, we have a youth mass on Thursdays, so that's very popular when groups come because uh, our youth mass, it's it's full. We get maybe 80 to 100 plus youth that come to the mass plus family members. Um, it's a very lively mass with a lot of young people. So when groups come, they come to the youth mass. They see the way young people come together and worship. Mm. So the groups that come, we want them to have an experience where they enter into a relationship, like you said at first. And it also becomes like a, a spiritual faith-filled experience. Uh, aside from being an experience of sharing, you know, some resources with the people that need them. What would you say in, in the time that you've been down there is like maybe a consistent um, myth or something that you find yourself repeating to people a lot who come and visit for the first time? Maybe, maybe some preconception that they might have when they first get there that you find yourself repeating all the time. It's like, you know busting some, some bubble, you know, myth uh, that might exist. One of the things is, uh, first of all, we're more alike than different. Um, I, I used to do youth ministry. I did youth ministry in Texas and New York, many parts of the U.S. And when I came here in Mexico, even though we're working with very poor people, we do the same type of ministry. You adjust a few things and it works. Like our faith is so universal, you mm. know, adoration, mass, so that, 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 that really is a language, a language of faith that transcends, you know, cultures and countries and all of that. So I, I used to tell people when I just got here that I would have a youth meeting. Then I forget that I'm in Mexico. You know, it just seems like <laughs> if I'm in L.A. until the meeting's over. Right. And no one has a ride because <laughs> in nice. L.A. the meeting Everybody's was over. Got a car. Everybody would jump in their car. Yeah. Teenagers, young adults. And out here, nobody had a ride. So uh, for the first few years, I was an Uber also. I would, you know, <laughs> after mass, we would get just get a bunch of people to help us take young people back home. Mm. Now, some of them, the young adults that are in college, many of them have cars now. They've been able to work hard and buy their cars. So that's changed. And then we have Uber now here in Mexico. That's been huge. So that's one thing that, you know what? Um, we might look different. But when you start talking to people, you, you realize that there's so many things that they have that we have in common. So that's something that we want to make sure that they know. Mm. Um, 
And second, that uh, despite the poverty, uh, despite the lack of opportunities, like you said at first, the joy that they find in the people here. Yeah. And it's incredible because, um, you know, I feel that, or I think, and I've, I've, I've seen this, that more young men and women suffer from depression in the U.S. Oh, yeah, for sure. Here anxiety, in Mexico. too. Yeah. And anxiety, correct. And for them to see that, you know what, like, there's something here that that even though these people, they, they, they lack so many opportunities, that they could have so much joy and so much love for serving. So I think that's also an eye-opener. Um, so, so, again, they take back a lot. Not only do they give, but they, they go back to the U.S. with just so much from the experience here. I think you nailed it, too, because sadly, I've, I've actually seen these statistics. I don't have them off the top of my head, but uh -huh. the depression and anxiety, especially among younger people, correlates very strongly with developed uh, nations. Sure. Like yeah. the more advanced the culture or whatever you want to call it, economically advanced anyway, the more right. economically advanced, the higher the incidence of depression, anxiety, right? So there's sure. this like weird correlation between those things that... You, you know, we take for granted if we're just living here all day, we don't see it, but you need a little bit of that contrast and it kind of wakes you up. But one of the most important things, I think, um, and I don't know if I mentioned to this, to you this before, when I just got here, like I said, I've done a lot of retreat ministry and we, uh, we have a lot of youth on weekends because a lot of them are in school. So we didn't really have much for them on the weekday a few years ago. So we thought, okay, we're going to have a, a movie night. So we'll invite the youth and we'll have like a really good movie and we'll get free popcorn. We would get 15 to 20 a youth. And we said, okay, let's have a topic night. We'll talk about interesting topics, you know, psychological topics, you know, 15, 20. Then we said, let's have a youth mass. You know, mm. we had a youth mass. We started the youth mass about six years ago. We get 80 to 120, sometimes 150 wow. young men and women. They come in buses. They, some of them take two buses to come to mass. Mm. So I think that was a huge eye-opener. You know, wow. sometimes we think that youth, they just want to have fun, you know, just have fun with them, you know, give them the psychological tools. But no, they actually, they wanted the mass. They wanted the sacraments. And I think that's been a huge eye-opener, you know, and to be able to do that. And that's been one of our best things. And I think that's what keeps our, our programs going, that, the, that not only are they serving others, but they're also getting the spiritual... Um, food that they need to be able to serve well at the heart of all of our programs. Because like I said, we also have um, lawyers to help migrants. We do uh, a lot of health programs. We do a lot of things. And at the heart of that is the retreat ministry in the mass. Um, so it's beautiful uh, when, when you have mass on Thursday, you see all these young people with their backpacks coming to mass on their own, you know, getting off a bus. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and being able to to come with such joy to mass. Well, I, again, I think I think what you what what you identify there too is also the fact that we all want um, you know authentic experiences, right? right? The thing that I think we get wrong a lot in in youth ministry, and you're significantly more educated in this area than I am, but what what I see just as a individual in a lot of youth efforts is in some ways like this. I mean, you know, the youth might say it's kind of cringy in some cases, like this idea of trying too hard to be relatable. And what right. happens is it has the opposite effect, right? Right. Whereas, you know, the mass, the sacraments, the faith, you can like it or not, you can agree or not, but it is nothing if not authentically real, right? So right. there's like this sense of like, I could see why many other people or more people would want that. It's not that it's the only thing that they need, but that they might be drawn to it simply because it's real, you know, where a right. lot of 
other efforts are like, you know, whatever. The, what music are they listening to these days? And we'll put some of that on and they'll show up. It's like, no, they got music in their headphones. They don't need to show up for your music. You know what I mean? So there's a little bit of that, I think, that is the result of just an authentic um, experience that you provide. And in in some cases, in most cases, I think that's successful. And, and you know, we, we put the bar high. Um, they know that they're going to get, you know, friendships and relationships and we're going to help them. But there's also expectations. You know, we also want you to yeah. become a better human being. And not to be afraid of that, not to be afraid of saying, you know what, these are these are the things that we stand by. And this is what we want you to uh, to learn here being with us. And, and it's amazing when you do that well. First, you have to have a good relationship because, you know, uh, it's not about just chastising and, you know, condemning or, or putting people down. Right. But it's also about being able to be authentic, truthful, putting the bar high and say, we're doing this because we want the best for you. And they respond so well. Mm. And that kind of goes against a lot of the mentality that's going on right now but not telling young people what to do yeah. about just, yep. you know, you know, do whatever you feel. Um, anytime our feelings are not in the correct uh, direction, of course. you know, and being able to help young people discern that that's powerful. Being no able question. for them to make better choices with their life. Um, especially because many of them didn't have role models at home. You know, um, many of them, their parents never got married or they're from single parent families or uh, the adults didn't go to school. Some of them got involved with, with violence or drugs. So they lack role models. Mm. So to be able to see positive role models and say, you know, we want the best for you. I think that's also been an eye opener. You know, we put the bar high, but we also, we also love them. We, all our parishioners, they're going to feel loved, but we're also going to expect something from them. I think you need that. I mean, people need yeah. that. You need a bar to reach. You know what I mean? It's right. it, everybody needs goals. Everybody needs a milestone. Everybody needs something objective that they can grasp toward that looks like it's a, a sense of progress. And sometimes I feel, particularly with youth, we get into this habit of, well, we don't want to, you know, scare them off, right? So we're going to be overly right. kind of, you know, watered down or whatever. And even though the motivation might be, you know, a good one, benevolent motivation, the result is sort of the opposite of what you intended, where if you do something authentic and you do it in relationship and you do it with real love, you know, love is about wanting the good of the other person. And sometimes that means, right. hey, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. And, 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 and that, that's formative. That helps, you know. Right. Um, but but there, we're sometimes very apprehensive, especially in this country, about taking some of those stances because we're afraid that you know, oh, well, they'll, they'll leave or, or, or what have you. And we've been very blessed. Like I said, we work with about 300 um, youth and young adults that are very involved. And many of them are serving in, in so many ways. The engineers, the lawyers, the psychologists, the, 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 the doctors and the students too. So I think that's been the secret, you know, being able to help them you grow in their faith, being able to help them in the, with their education and also giving them the opportunity to serve. Mm. Service is definitely also at the heart of what we do for them to see uh, that their lives, we were created to be able to serve others, to help others. That's part of who we are, you know, as human beings. Uh, so that's been, that's been very, that's, that's been our success story. So that's why maybe I feel so blessed to be here because I just seen so many, so many wonderful things happen. Despite the fact that there's violence, that there's drugs, that there's just sad stories um, so many wonderful things. Amen. Now well, a few other stories. If you want me to share some stories, I don't know how much time do we well, have. Is I'm, it almost over? I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're there. No, definitely share a story. I do want to get to our final segment. Wait, what? And sure. I want to make sure that people who might be interested in finding out more 
about, I don't know, the missionary oblates or what you're doing with the Baja mission or what you're doing um, across the board with, with all of these efforts, how they can get themselves involved, aware, maybe somebody wants to go visit. You know, we have a lot of people in LA who, who listen to the show. Right. So right. I, I do want you to share that, but yeah, sh- share with us one, uh, one story to kind of close. One last story. Um, we, we, we've done so much work with the youth. And like I said, we, we really want to help young people, young men and women, but also the adults and also the people that are sick. Um, there was a couple that, um, the, they wanted to get married by church cause they were only married by court and, uh, the woman had cancer and, um, she was already, um, it was very advanced, the cancer. So she couldn't come to the church, but she wanted to get married by church. So we did the process and I went to their house to marry them. Mm. And she came out of the, her room cause she could barely walk dressed in a, in a wedding gown with a veil. It was beautiful. Oh, right. That's sweet. But through the mass, she kept on complaining, you know, she was hurting from her stomach and mm. I would stop the mass. And I said, you know, is she okay? And they say, it's because she's in pain. She had pancreatic cancer, oh. cancer in the pancreas. Yeah. And, and she had no medication. And they say, can we give her something? And they say, we, we have no medication. They were so poor. They couldn't afford anything for her. And the reason why that story hit home so much, because my mother passed away from cancer, mm. pancreatic cancer, uh, five years ago. Mm. And she had the best care possible in the U.S., and it was still very painful for her. It was just so difficult for her. So to imagine uh, this lady um, with no medication, uh, with no health care, dying of cancer, it was just so powerful. Um, so they got married and she was able to uh, take communion because uh, that's what she wanted. She wanted wow. to take communion before she died. God bless her. Uh, and she took communion and she was just so moved by it. Her whole uh, face changed. It was just... It was such a, a beautiful moment. Uh, but again, I mean, I go home thinking, you know, we, we need to help these people. How do we give them some medication? Because life is tough enough for them as it is, mm. you know, with the poverty and not to add, you know, something like cancer. So, so experiences like that, I think, have really moved us to create programs that are going to outreach, that are going to help people. And to be able to see the impact of faith in the middle of tragedy, I think that's been the best thing, you know, despite the fact that this lady was in the middle of pain because of the cancer, the fact that she was able to take the Eucharist just changed her whole face. She was, she was in tears of joy for that moment. What a great example Um, that is for all of us, uh, you know, who, mm -hmm. who, you know, we should, we should long for that same level of sincerity and appreciation for the Eucharist and what a lesson in real fortitude and in real courage, you know. Words like courageous get thrown a lot around in, in, in U.S. culture, fathers. I know you know. And half the time, it's like, that's not courageous. <laughs> okay? um, but what a great example something like that yeah. is for, for really all of us. So if somebody did want to find out more about how they can actually get involved with the work that you're doing um, in Baja, what would they do? We, we have a website for the Missionary Oblates, and it's omiusa.org, OMI oblate of Mary Immaculate, USA.org. And there you will have some information about the uh, Baja mission or the Tijuana mission. Um, we also have, we have some pages on Facebook, like Jovenes Oblatos Tijuana. Jovenes means youth, Oblatos, the Oblates, Tijuana. Uh, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. Uh, we're constantly sharing uh, videos and, and stories. Um, we also have uh, uh, a newsletter that goes out every month just with powerful stories, wonderful stories too of hope. Mm. Uh, and we sometimes feature the student of the month 
just a student that's about to graduate from college uh, and what they're doing in the community. So if people want more information, we could also provide that. Like I said, our website, uh, you can also visit us at uh, missionwithyouth.com, uh, missionwithyouth.com and, and look at Baja California Mission. Awesome. We get a lot of volunteers throughout the year. And like I said, we've never had a problem and it's life-changing for a lot of people. Uh, the combination of being coming to a different country, seeing the poverty, but interacting with the people, sharing the faith, uh, um, that really changes people's lives. Well, I'm coming down real soon. I just talked to my wife about this uh, last night. Fantastic. I, to I told her we were going to be recording you and I today, and, and I told her about you, and I, I shared the video with her. I don't know if she's seen it. The video, it's like a 10-minute video that kind of tells a little bit of the story. And um, and she was like, absolutely, sign me up, let's go. Oh, good. So, so we'll be down there, uh, you know, sooner than you know, Father. But um, what a great what a great privilege to have you on. We're going to include all those uh, uh, sites and all that info in the show notes so people can um, avail themselves of them. But, you know, my prayers, Father, for you and your whole team down there, for the Oblates in general, and for the continued prosperity of this great work. And what a great, you know, again, what a great evangelical ex example Right. For other people, um, especially being so close to the U.S., where they can experience, um, you know, what they might be called to contribute as well. So thank you so much for uh, for stopping by and sharing an hour with us. Thank you, Deacon. Now, Father, you know, you're no, you don't get off that easy. Right, yeah. So are you ready to uh, to play Wait What? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So question number one, Father. Of uh, course, we've been talking about Tijuana a lot, so we have to have a question about TJ. So... Which of these is false about your hometown of Tijuana, Mexico? Which is false, oh. okay? Is it number one? Is it one? Tijuana has a large Chinese community and is home to one of the oldest Chinese neighborhoods in Mexico. Is it, is it number two? Tijuana is the birthplace of the Caesar salad. Is it, or is it three? Tijuana is a major center for pyrotechnic tourism with many people traveling to the city to buy fireworks. Which of those is false? Tijuana has a large Chinese community. Right, right, right. It's the birthplace of Caesar salad. It or... is the birthplace of Caesar salad, so that's true. All right. So uh, we do have, I'm going to say three. Three is false. You are correct. It is correct. false. Correct, all right. <laughs> it is, however, Tijuana is a major center for medical tourism. A lot of people travel okay. there for dental and cosmetic procedures, which are at a fraction right. of the cost of the U.S., but the, the other two are true. Yeah, TJ does have a large Chinese population in the Colonia Federal in particular. And TJ, as you already said, is actually the place where Caesar salad was first invented by an Italian-American restaurateur who happened to be named Caesar Cordini or Cardini. I don't know. In like the 20s at some point. And people can go to the restaurant and actually have the Caesar salad. It's fantastic. The OG. It better come OG, with anchovies. Yeah. Does yeah. it come with anchovies? Because that's like, isn't that the original? I think it could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't like anchovies, so I've never had it with anchovies. But <laughs> You don't know what you're missing, Father. All right. Qu question number two. And I know we talked a little bit about this, the fact that uh, you guys uh, have a lot of construction projects, right? You build homes and do different things. So right. this, with that in the background, Father, true or false, St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor whose feast day happens to be tomorrow, contributed to the design and construction of the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome during the 13th century. True or false? I'm going to say true. <clears throat> Incorrect. <It's> <laughs> Sadly. He was known for a lot of things, as you know, Father, but but, <laughs> but being a construction worker was not one. Same, same century, so he could have helped, 
but it right, turns out right. he did. Maybe it. he did. <laughs> maybe maybe he did. Maybe I got that one wrong. But uh, <laughs> all right, final question, uh, question number three. And I know that we didn't really talk too much about this. You mentioned some about the musical work that you're doing, but I also know that you grew up in a musical home. Right, right. So I'm sure that you're the guy for this one. So there's a composer. His name is Frank LaRocca. He lives here in California, and he recently composed. Um, uh, be, uh, he was commissioned to compose by the Archbishop of San Francisco, the Mass of the Americas. It's okay. a, the Mass of the Americas was composed in an effort, among other things, to unite the Catholic, Latino, and Anglo communities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. This Mass features beautiful combinations of traditional liturgical worship with Latino culture. Mm-hmm. One example is the Alleluia of the Mass is set to the music of this famous Mexican folk tune which every child coming up hears at least once per year. What is the Mexican folk tune that the Alleluia is set to? Would it be the Mañanitas? Las Mañanitas. Very All nice. Right. That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> and for those who don't know, Las Mañanitas is basically happy birthday. So they hear it at least once. They can hear it on their feast day as well. But um, Oh, wow. That's wonderful. But yeah, it's a beautiful piece of music. If, you, if, yeah. you've, never, if you've never heard it, The Mass of the Americas. Um, actually, Frank LaRocca has been on this show as well, the composer who wrote that. I'm going to have to check uh, it out. Yeah, very good, Father. You got two, two out of three. Two I'm gonna, three. I'm going to bump it up because that second one, you may be right. Maybe St. Thomas Aquinas did throw in a helping hand. Who knows? So uh, so very, very good job. Well done. You represented you, the, the Oblates well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Father. Questions. Well, before we go, can we have your blessing? Of course. Uh, thank you so much, Deacon, for having me here. And uh, thank you for the people that are listening. And please pray for us. It, it is it is a mission with, with so many, so many needs but also so much hope. And that's why we're here. And that's why we continue to grow. So uh, the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord and each other. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. All right, Father. It was a pleasure being here today, Deacon. Likewise. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe, share this episode with somebody, maybe with the most adventurous person you know who wants to go out into the periphery to make a difference so they can come in contact with the work the Father's doing down in Baja, California. Everyone is welcome. We have a lot of work. We have a lot of programs, so please come visit. Amen. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.